take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter number 16. Revelation, chapter number 16. I, I have been so thoroughly enjoying our series of sermons through the book of Revelation, and I, I hope that you have as well. I think this has become my favorite book to preach through. This is the second time I will have preached through the book of Revelation, a priest through Revelation in the church that I pastored before coming here to be your pastor at Longview Point, and I enjoyed the series uh, thoroughly during that time as well. I was talking to a brother pastor. I think the thing that makes it so fun preaching through Revelation is that it makes old truth surprising again. This is a, a bad thing, but this is an observation based in reality. Over the course of time, the precious promise of the gospel suffers familiarity fatigue on the church. Like, we're not surprised. Like, I should, I should be able to say that God has loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and you ought to be able to be knocked over with a feather at that basic observation. The very idea that God's only son, free of sin, would bear our sin debt on the cross, that his righteous blood would be shed as atonement for my sin and for yours, and that that, his dead and lifeless body, would be raised from the dead on the third day. I mean, this is, this is, this is not like basic stuff, right? I mean, you won't see that today. Who else has been raised from the dead and lives eternally? And, and yet we have such exposure to that. It doesn't astonish us the way that it should. Grace doesn't always seem amazing to us the way that it should. But what Revelation does is to tell the message of the gospel from an apocalyptic perspective. And we don't know apocalyptic perspective. It's different, strange. In fact, some of you have been wrestling along the way with the apocalyptic perspective. But once we scratch beneath the surface of a cursory reading of Revelation, and begin to sort of wade through this apocalyptic perspective and all that that entails, we are surprised again by the message of the God. Watch your faces in response. We're working through a passage, working through a passage, and I know I can read your mind. I wish he would get done with whatever this is, whatever direction he has headed. And then all at once, there's this surprise at the truth of the gospel. And it's just a blessed thing to observe. And it's a sweet thing to experience. I get it days before you, but to see it in your face. And I know it's coming because it came for me the week prior in that office over there. Surprised by the mercies of God toward us in his son, Jesus. So my word to you in listening this morning and listening to any sermon in the book of Revelation for that matter is that before you get entangled in the weeds of difficulty and interpretation in all of what has been imposed upon the Bible in the book of Revelation, just relish the goodness of God in the gospel. With that in mind, let's read together Revelation 16. If you would, join me in standing as we Read the holy word of God together. Revelation 16, 1. 
Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. The second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like a dead man's and all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard the angel of the water say, You are righteous, who is and who was the Holy One, for you have decided these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you also gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard someone from the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Fourth, poured out his bowl on the sun. He was given the power to burn people with fire, and people were burned by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, yet they did not repent of their actions. Sixth, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief, the one who is alert. And remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame is blessed. So they assembled him at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hell, because that plague was extremely severe. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word may be seated. There are very few passages in all of the Bible that have been as frequently misrepresented or have spawned as much interest and intrigue as Revelation chapter 16. Like the mark of the beast, I can simply say the battle of Armageddon and I have your undivided attention for the rest of the preaching and the teaching time, right? There's a certain curiosity about these events as they unfold. But the passage itself is only made difficult by our efforts to see what we've been instructed to see, most of which is not found in Revelation chapter 16. Beneath the cluttered, misdirected interpretation, the chapter actually speaks of a very simple principle. Part of this is a little inside baseball, but part of the sermon preparation process is, is to deduce the main idea of the passage in such a way that you can state that 
in one short sentence. In fact, I always try to state that in my notes in less than 21 words. Well, this morning I can reduce the main idea of Genesis chapter 16 to but two words. God wins. And consequently, we win. Because he wins through his son, we win by faith in his son who fights the battle for us who has won, who has merited our salvation. It is by his works we are saved. It is by faith we are identified with him. It is by our identification with him that we become co-heirs with Christ as God's only son. It is as co-heirs that we become co-regents with our king and our savior ruling over all the world. It is as co-regents with our king that we become participants in the victory he has secured for us. Christ, our great general in battle, is the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. That's the message of our passage. God wins. Let us pray. No, I'm just kidding. It could never be that simple, right? There's a basic message here. God wins, that God has by his son Christ secured a great victory. Victory over the dragon, victory over the beast, victory over the false prophet, victory over death, victory over hell, victory over the grave, victory over all evil. You got problems with the presence of evil? I've got good news for you. Jesus conquers it entirely by his blood and brings to justice those who've been participants in this evil act, in these ongoing evil acts. It's a longer passage, but I think we can group a series of bowls together and move fairly quickly through the early part of our passage. In fact, bowls one through five form a unit, and then bowls six and seven. Oh, I am so ready for allergy season to be over and to just be able to preach without choking. So sorry for that. I'm a little embarrassed, but we'll roll on. That was like a cough, sneeze combination that frankly I didn't know what to do with. Bulls 1 through 5 make a single point. Go to verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful bowls, uh, sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Yet again, these judgments are following after the pattern established in the plagues that God brought against the people of Egypt in order to secure the redemption and deliverance of his people Israel out of their Egyptian bondage. Now, in the end of days, these same plagues are operating to exact justice against the evil empires of this world and to bring to pass the full redemption and deliverance of God's people. In verse 3, the Bible says, The second poured out his bowl into the sea, it turned to blood like a dead man's, and all life in the sea dried. Maybe you remember that a sign to Moses and Aaron was the ability to dip water from the Nile and to pour that out as blood. Later, a plague that turned the waters of the Nile to blood. That one plague in the Exodus account has been divided into two. There is the plague over the waters of the sea, and in the third bowl, the plague over the rivers and the springs. Look at verse 4. 
The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, it seems as though God has assigned certain dominion to angels. Here is the angel of the water. It's kind of a strange thing, but this angel speaks. And in the book of Revelation, when someone speaks or is quoted in this way, you need to pay careful attention. A part of apocalyptic writing is the acknowledgement that sometimes apocalyptic writing can be tricky to interpret. So there are these helpers that occur throughout the passage. And often one of the ways that we are helped as readers to understand the passage is by the voice of some participant being heard in the passage. And they will state in summary form the basic theological idea that's being communicated in its surrounding context. Listen to what the angel of the water say. You are righteous who is and who was the Holy One. You have decided these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you also gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. This angel is helping us to see that these first five bold judgments are intended to communicate to us that the justice and the judgment of God is right. That God is precise and exacting in the service of judgment against the world. There's a voice from the altar in verse 7 that reiterates this idea. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. He is right because they poured out the blood of the prophets and the martyrs. Now you've given them blood to drink. What they've given out, God gives in turn. Now, we live in a culture, in a society, where justice seems to be beyond our grasp. It seems as though there is little justice, that it just cannot be found. I mentioned last week that I think that I'm of that first generation that really longs to see justice. I think that's characteristic of my generation as a millennial, and I think that that's characteristic of Gen Z's as well. This want for justice, even where it's misguided, misdirected, misunderstood, there seems to be this shared interest that justice would be served. And I wonder in my generation specifically, how much that has been influenced by what we have observed. With the advent of the 24 hour news cycle, we are able to see and experience so much more from sea to shining sea than we were able to see in times past. I can cite you from the news cycle, past and present, examples of the violation of the principle of justice. I was just a child when I watched the Los Angeles County Police Department chase that white Ford Bronco all over the place. And I watched with the rest of America, even as a child, understanding very little of what was unfolding, that clown show of a trial. Now, I know now as an adult that there were all kinds of racial connotations and back and forth, but I didn't get all of that as a kid. All I knew, my perception, what I pulled away from that whole experience was if you have enough money, enough celebrity, enough influence, and the right defense attorney, you can do whatever you want to do in this country. That's how justice works. But God never fails in the service of justice. He does not fail to deliver just this week, I read the case of a man by the name of Sidney Holmes, 
who served 34 years of a 400-year sentence in the Florida State Penitentiary for a crime he has now proven to have not committed. God doesn't miss this way. God doesn't miss this way. But exacts judgment, renders verdict, and passes sentence with absolute precision. God does not punish unjustly. The reasonableness, the justification for the punishment that God doles out is cited in our passage because they spilled the blood of the saints and the prophets. You gave them blood to drink, and heaven attests to the reality that they deserve it. It's a hard thing to hear, perhaps, even a bit uncomfortable in our hypersensitive era to even say. But the word of God could not be clearer. The verdict that is passed, the sentence that is rendered, is right. Justice is now forever served. God doesn't fail to, to punish, nor does he punish unjustly. This, this third example, a case that's kind of become emblematic, it's become a parable for the state of our justice system. A man in Rochester, New York, raped a four-year-old and a nine-year-old child and is sentenced to 180 days in jail. That's not justice. Dear brothers, God does not come short of the service of full justice. Now, I don't know that we fully appreciate that, but we should. In this generation of longing to see justice served, our affections ought to turn at the notion that all things are being drawn together to the culmination of human history when justice is fully and finally, with exacting precision, served over all the earth. We ought to take great hope and rest in that reality. In God, justice is served. Are you glad for that? Like we're not talking about a court system in which there are technicalities and high-priced defense attorneys. Attorneys, There is no appellate court in the court system of heaven. His verdict is final and his sentence is right and it will be served in perfection. Like sometimes I hear, we get down to this part of the, the trial where the, the victim's family gets to speak. And in the event that the death penalty has been the sentence, which is such a rare thing, Families will often say things, and we say these kinds of things in conversation, that death is too good for him. He should be left to rot away in a cell in a state prison somewhere. Dear brothers, I just want to say to you, I want to remind you in case you didn't know, that rotting away in a prison cell is a far better place to be than a lake that flows with fire and brimstone. The justice of God will finally and forever be served with exacting precision. The testimony of these first five bowls is that the justice of God is right. It is thorough. It is precise. It does not miss. Go to verse 8. The Bible says the fourth poured out his bowl on the sun. He was given the power to burn people with fire. And people were burned by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, the Bible says, The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. 
yet they did not repent of their actions. Now, listen, remember what Revelation does. Cycle of seven seals takes us right up to the end, and then we back up and do it again. Seven trumpets takes us right up to the end, and then we back up and do it again. Seven bowls takes us to and through the end of things as we know them. To say that we're discussing here the 11th hour would be an understatement. The, the final, we, we are so close to the buzzer that we need replay to see if the shot gets off the fingertip before the, the, the red light on the backboard comes on. And yet there seems to be occasion that those who have come under the judgment of God might repent of their sin and come to God. Tell me God's not gracious. We have the beginnings on the unfold, of the unfolding of the final judgment. And yet the observation is made that they did not repent and give him glory. They did not repent and give him glory. And even at the close of our chapter, the Bible says they blasphemed God for the plague of hell because that plague was extremely severe. You ever, you ever wondered, what if God just moved in this great act of justice? Wouldn't there be people falling on their face in repentance and coming to God? Sometimes when I see these people on television blaspheming God, I just think, God, if you would just kill them right now on live television, there, there might be a whole bunch of people who came to faith in Jesus. But dear brothers, there are some people who are so entrenched in their sin, who are so drunk on the influence of this world system, who have so succumbed to the propaganda of this day, that even in their deepest, darkest hour of need, they will not bow the knee and repent of their sin before the kingship of Jesus. This is a hard reality, but a reality nonetheless. The justice of God is right. Now, I want you to see something in verse 10 that may not seem like a big deal in the beginning, but I think John is saying something by implication that's pretty powerful over the course of the next several verses. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now, you've heard that before, throne of the beast, but you don't remember it. You heard it before in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 13, when Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, this is the first of several references to, the, to those letters, those seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, I want you to be careful that we don't divorce Revelation 1 through 3 with the rest of the book. It all works together. But there are some very specific addresses to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, John is telling here about future events with present implications and rooting them in the experiences of the church now in the past. Now, I want you to hold that thought for the next few moments. Pergamum, I know where you are. And then the fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Look to verse 12. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. 
Now, this would resonate especially with Christians in the first century. In fact, it would resonate with anyone in the Roman Empire in the first century. The Euphrates River served as a protective gate for the Roman Empire against the kings of the east. Pretty much the only enemy that Rome ever feared were the Parthians, and the Parthians lived east beyond the Euphrates River. If the Euphrates River were to dry, it would in effect be the opening of this gate of protection for Rome's fiercest enemy to run over and into the Roman Empire, which would effectively mean the fall of the empire as they knew it. There is this ironic twist of fate that's happening in this simple verse. We talked last week about how God brings us over. And the paradigm for our understanding that crossing over comes from the experience of Israel, who came to the region of Moab, and they looked across the Jordan, and they saw the land that flowed with milk and honey, and by the power of God, the waters of the Jordan parted, that they would cross over on dry ground. In effect, God dried up the Jordan in order that the people of God might cross over and enter into the land that flowed with milk and honey. In drying up the Jordan, God brought to pass the salvation of his people. In the case of those who have opposed the things of God, He would dry up yet another river, and it would mean their judgment. It is almost as though in the same act, God brings about the salvation of his people and the judgment of their enemies. These kings from the east are those Parthian kings and others who would bring judgment on the Roman Empire, the beast, Babylon, and all who have opposed people of God. Verse 13. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. Y'all tracking with me? I realize that the imagery of our passage, the language of our passage is militaristic, but we have not left the war of words. We are combating the propaganda of our day with the weapon of our warfare, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these three evil spirits are working to counter the preaching of the gospel by intoxicating its subjects, the world, with the influence of the beast and the dragon and the false prophet. This is a propaganda war. This is a war of words. This is the message of the world, the message of the beast, the message of the dragon against the message of the church. The idea that Caesar is Lord, that someone else is Lord, that some system is Lord, that this life is Lord versus the reality that Jesus is Lord. That's where the battle is being fought. Verse 14, they are spirits of demons performing signs who traveled to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now in verse 13, the language of false prophecy is introduced for the first time in a long time. The first time we hear about false prophecy is with regards to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 20, where it is said that the church had come under the influence of that false prophetess, Jezebel. Now the beast takes a new form in this passage. The beast is now referred to as the false prophet. And there are direct connections with that address in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20 of Jezebel and her 
false prophecy. That may not seem like much, but look down to verse 15. Look, Jesus just speaks out of the blue. It's like Jesus just sort of horns in here and says, I've got something to say. But the way he says it and where he says it is signaling something for us. Look, I am coming like a thief, the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame is blessed. This is, in effect, the same thing Jesus says to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He warns this people. They wear fine clothes. They have access to fine things. They're wealthy. They're comfortable. They wear fine clothes. But he warns them that their, their outer garments, their fine clothing belies a spiritual reality. Namely, that they are naked and that they ought to be ashamed of their spiritual nakedness. These are almost the exact words Jesus says to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now here again, John is speaking of future events prophetically with implications for us in the present. This shapes the way we live. We live in victory because the victory has been secured and is being fulfilled in time to come. But he has told of these future events rooted in our present experience, with implications for our present experience, rooted in the past experiences of the church in such a way that it creates this message for us, right? He's speaking specifically to the churches of Asia Minor, even as he talks about what is to come in a day that is yet to come for us, now nearly 2,000 years removed. Here's the message. In all of the fascination and fixation on a great battle that is to come, don't you ever lose sight of the reality that a spiritual warfare is raging about us right now. Your biggest issue today is not the threat of Armageddon. Your biggest issue today is that the devil prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so many of us are willfully ignorant to the spiritual warfare that is raging about us. It's a word of warning to Smyrna and Pergamum and Laodicea. By extension, it's a word of warning to you and to I, a warning against being found naked and ashamed, a warning that we ought neglect the spiritual reality of a great battle that is ongoing all around us. We, we are not, as Western people, terribly spiritual. You could compare that to Eastern people who are often, usually, very spiritual. I don't mean in the West people are not Christian and in the East they are. I mean, there, there is a, a, a cutting off. We have, in the Western mindset, we have removed the spiritual from the equation. and We've been trained to do so by modernity, by the culture. We are victims in so many ways of the environment in which we live in this respect. You don't see that. There's a, a tenderness, a sensitivity to the spiritual in the East. Let me tell you what, let me show you what I mean by that. If you ask an African Christian to pray for your health, if you are diagnosed with cancer and you say to your African Christian brother or your Asian Christian brother, would you pray for me? 
they will immediately lay their hands on you and pray that our God and great physician would rid your body of cancer supernaturally. If you ask an American Christian to pray for you in your cancer diagnosis, there is a strong likelihood that they're going to pray that God would use medicine and technology and your oncologist and great insight from other physicians in order to bring to pass your healing. Now, I'm not telling you that one is right and the other is wrong. I'm just telling you it demonstrates how unspiritual as a people we are. Even as Christian people, we are often blind to the spiritual influences that exist around us. And I'm convinced that there's a direct connection between the prayerless experiences of many Western Christians and this lack of sensitivity to the spiritual domain. If you could see the battle that is raging about you in the spiritual dimension, you might be far more inclined to pray than you are at the present. Do you remember that episode when it seemed as though the prophet of God was cornered and his sidekick was in a panic? And at once, he gave his companion the ability to see what was unfolding in the spiritual realm about them. And he realized God had them right where he wanted them. They felt as though they were hemmed up. But they had been encircled by an army of angels. Now, I'm not a charismatic or a crazy person. But I am keenly aware that there is a dimension that is not of this world that has tremendous bearing on the undergoings, on the unfolding of events in the world in which we live. There is more to this world than the physical realm that you and I see with eyes of sight. In the spiritual realm, there is an ongoing battle that has bearing in so much of our life in so many different ways. And we ought to pray and we ought to gird ourselves taking on ourselves the armor of God for engaging in this spiritual warfare. Again, John is warning Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea. Don't, don't get so focused on what lies ahead out there in the future that you neglect the reality that a battle is being fought around us. We're just not aware sometimes, but a battle is being fought. So often our experiences influence the way, just the way, we, the way we see stuff. Let me give you an illustration. Are y'all with me today? Are y'all awake? Are y'all spring break hungover? I was with your pastor Jason, missionary, faithful brother. We were in, in India at a masjid. I tell this story from time to time. Now Jason's mom and dad loved Jesus. Jason had a different upbringing than I do. Jason's just an all-around good dude, right? Like, I'm a sinner from way back. But Jason's a pretty good brother. And we're there with a couple of other brothers, and we've been in this Muslim masjid, which is, think, Muslim community center. And we've been there for a long time, and we've been well-received. It had been in the daylight hours, and, and we were preparing to leave. It was getting dark. In fact, it was, it was getting dark in a hurry. And as we walked outside the gate, the, the children of, of the parents who were inside, they just swarmed us, you know, white people in South Asia, and they were all around us. And I'm looking around like, I don't think this is good. Now, Jason, 
thankfully, was not raised in an environment where you needed to be on the lookout for real and present danger on an ongoing basis. And he and our missionary friends are just talking back and forth with these children. Now, what do you think would happen this morning if four Muslim men were standing outside our church and they were cornering our children to speak to them about their faith? I got a good idea about how that would end. And I'm looking around going, if we don't get out of here, somebody is about to wear a knot upside the head before we get out of here. Their experience left them oblivious to the reality of danger that was abounding. I could see the looks. I mean, I know the language, but I know that look that says, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to kill you. It's universal. And sometimes in, in, in the unspiritual environment in which we live, we are materialist functionally. Sometimes what that produces in us is an inability to see the danger that abounds around us in the spiritual realm. And I'm telling you, you better take the helmet of salvation and you better take the breastplate of righteousness and you better shod your feet with the gospel of the peace that's found only in Jesus Christ. And you better gird yourself with prayer. There is a war that is waging around you. You can be willfully ignorant to that reality if you want, but you will do so to your own demise. That's the word of warning that Jesus has for the church, we are engaged in an ongoing spiritual battle. Now look at verse 16. They assembled them at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Those three evil spirits go out to gather together all who've taken the mark and worship the beast and to assemble them in one place. Now I'll just tell you, I think that this is symbolic. I was, I, was reading another, I was reading a scholar's work on Revelation, and, and he was accused of not taking Revelation seriously because he took so much of Revelation symbolically. And I thought his response was clever and sarcastic, and I like sarcastic. He, he, he said, I take the first verse of Revelation literally, which literally says to take the book of Revelation symbolically. I take verse 1 literally, and that controls the way I read everything that comes after. What I'm telling you is, my position is that this is a symbolic thing. That you don't even have to bring all of the people that have worshipped the beast and taken the mark together in one place. God is not going to be limited by time and space in bringing judgment with exacting precision against those who have worshipped the beast. He can do it, and he will do it. But in this portrayal of the judgment of God that is to come, they are all assembled together under the influence of these three evil spirits that go out. And they are assembled together at a place called here Armageddon in the Hebrew. So we got this weird thing happening here where you got spelled in Greek, something in Hebrew translated into English. Some of your translations, there's a few English translations which will say not Armageddon, but Har-mageddon. And even if your translation doesn't say Har-mageddon, if it says Armageddon, you look to the bottom of the page, there's going to be a footnote that says Har-mageddon or Har-mageddon or something to the effect of the best manuscripts say Har-mageddon. That might seem like a big distinction, but in reality it's not. It's the difference in a breathing mark in the Greek language, which looks like the English apostrophe. 
In fact, it's not even whether or not it's there or not, it's which way it's turned. If it's turned to the left, or the right rather, it's Armageddon. If it's turned to the left, it's Armageddon. If it's Armageddon, the word itself means the mountain in Megiddo or Megiddo. Choose your pronunciation. Someone questioned my pronunciation of that after the first service. It's the mountain of Megiddo or Megiddo. I don't care how you pronounce it. If it's Armageddon, Hebrew, for that is the city of Megiddo or Megiddo. Now, what I'm saying to you is that this is a symbolic thing. The geographic location is a non-issue. In fact, if it's Harmageddon, if it's mountain of Megiddo or Megiddo, here, here's, the, here's the ironic twist. There is no mountain in Megiddo or Megiddo. I'm just going to call it what I want and you all follow me, all right? There's no mountain there. Maybe that's John's way of signaling that this is not about geographic location. This is about a monumental moment. The city of Megiddo, the region of Megiddo, had been home to a number of significant battles. You can find them all across the Old Testament. There's one historian that says that more than 200 historic battles took place in the valley of Megiddo. You find in Judges 5 and 6 that Deborah secures victory for the people of Israel under her leadership in the region of Megiddo. Or that David in 1 Samuel 31 secures victory over the, uh, over the Philistines at Megiddo. But it's not that the people of God always win there. Josiah, who is one of Judah's best kings, dies in battle at Megiddo. It's just that this is a place that comes to symbolize monumental moments in battle, like Gettysburg or the Alamo, Normandy. The, these, these words we can assign to other battles and other geographic locations in order to say something about the historical importance of the battle without concern for the geographic reference itself. I will be in Israel in late August and September, and I am assuming that on our tour we will see the Valley of Megiddo. It's not big enough for a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 16. It's not big enough for the army of Israel, let alone all of the armies of the world. This is a symbolic gathering together for this monumental moment in history when with the sword of his mouth, Jesus cuts down his opposition. Look at verse 17. Seventh poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on the people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hell because that plague was extremely severe. Now, the chapters to come unpack in greater detail what happens with the outpouring of that seventh bowl. Here's what I want you to see in light of Armageddon. We are not, in my estimation, talking about an actual military battle. 
And we are assuredly not talking about a military battle in which national armies or you and I as believers are military combatants. We are participants in the victory of Jesus. But it is Jesus and Jesus alone who will, by the sword of his mouth, secure the victory. This is not a battle scenario in which he sends his privateers in to do the difficult work of frontline duty. This is a spiritual warfare in which our general goes before us, wielding the sword of his mouth. Remember Revelation 1? This picture of Jesus that leaves John struck. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I saw Jesus in this magnificent way. Perhaps the strangest, most mysterious, most astonishing aspect of that vision was what? A double-edged sword that comes forth from his mouth. The battle of Armageddon is not a battle to be fought with bullets and grenades and fighter jets and tanks. The battle of Armageddon will be fought with the word of our Savior's mouth who by his very voice will cut down those who oppose him, vindicate the blood of the saints, vindicate his own righteousness, settle, seal, and secure for all eternity our victory, our being co-heirs with him, with Christ, the beneficiary of the great wealth of heaven by the power of Jesus and the word of his mouth. Don't you think that the God who spoke the world into existence and hung the earth on its axis and flung the planets in their courses can by the power of his mouth cut down those who have opposed him. That's what he does. Dear brothers, I want you to see that the victory is ours. The victory is ours. In this strange way, God has given us a measure of insight to what the end holds for us, even from the very beginning. That's a game changer, right? That's a promise for the future that has bearing in the present. That's a promise for the future that has great influence in the way we conduct ourselves from this moment forward. We, we live in the lap of luxury as American Christians. We have been anesthetized by our creature comforts, benefits, and privileges that still come with being a Christian. They may be slipping away, but they nevertheless still exist. We can be blind to the reality that in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith in Jesus than the previous 19 centuries combined. That there is increasing difficulty for the faithful of Christ all over the world. I, listen, I, 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 when I, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I really do mean this. I don't care like what your end time system is. I'm, I just don't have any interest in that kind of thing. At least in, I, I do, but I don't have any interest in debating that, right? That's not my thing. But, but I got some news for you. If, if you. if you have been sold and have bought the notion that you are going to slide through this life healthy and wealthy and fat and sassy without ever a problem or a challenge, you have been greatly misled. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and great difficulty. And I think, I think, I think that the reason 
that we don't amen with a stronger voice the reason this passage isn't sweeter to our soul than we may find it on this day is become, because we have become so numb under the comforts we enjoy to the very real and present danger of hardship, pain, suffering, and deep anguish. I think if today we lived under the threat of death, we would find Revelation 16 all the more encouraging. It may be hard for us to fully appreciate what has been expressed in this passage. But dear brother, the day is coming. And I hope that you'll be able to dig back into the well of your memory. That you'll have access to the word of God in an area you may not have needed until now. But will almost without question need at some point in time in the future. God is good and he wins. And we get to win with him by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, you're good, you're gracious, you're merciful, you love us. God, I was lost and blind, and you found me and gave me sight. God, I'm thankful for that, God. I'm not in a place of safety against your wrath because of anything I've done, but because of what you've done for me. God, I pray this morning that you would do that for those who are gathered here. For the lost and blind, would you seek them and find them? And save them. Give them eyes to see the irresistible beauty of your only son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves for who and what we are. Help us to see the righteousness, the rightness of your will and your judgment. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to break through the fog created by so much of the propaganda of our day. To see you infinite holiness, how undeserving we are, and the amazing nature of the grace that you've afforded us in your son, Jesus. Save some, God. Awaken the church. Help us, Lord, to have a, a wartime mentality and outlook in the healthiest of ways. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.